Profiles in Teaching with Technology is a podcast series created by Music First, a company dedicated to providing world-class cloud-based tools, content, and classroom management platforms to music teachers around the world. Each episode features a K-12 music educator who uses technology to enhance their teaching in innovative ways. We'll discuss the what, why, and how of their technology integration and hopefully share some teaching strategies that you can use in your own classroom. For more information about Music First, please visit www.musicfirst.com. There you'll be able to find out about all of our platforms, as well as sign up for a free 30-day trial. Monty Mass is the executive director of the Cavaliers Drum and Bugle Corps, located in Rosemont, Illinois. Prior to joining the Cavaliers in 2019, Monty spent 12 years as a director of fine arts for the Klein Independent School District in Texas, where he oversaw the band, orchestra, choral, elementary music, theater arts, dance, and visual arts programs for the district. Prior to his tenure as fine arts director, Monty held the position of fine arts program coordinator in Klein ASD and was a band director at Klein Oak High School. He's also taught at Kellallen ISD and Coventry Local in Ohio. During his tenure as Director of Fine Arts, ensembles from Klein ISD were invited to perform at TMEA 12 times, the Midwest Clinic 7 times, the Music for All National Festival 8 times, and Klein ISD was named a Best Community for Music by the NAM Foundation 11 times. He was named the Texas Music Administrators Conference 2018 Administrator of the Year. Outside of his work in schools, Monty has had a long and award-winning affiliation with DCI. Christopher Drew Dickey serves as Associate Director of the Longhorn Band and on the conducting faculty of the Butler School of Music at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's currently completing his Doctor of Musical Arts degree in wind conducting. In addition to this appointment, Mr. Dickey serves as the Brass Caption Coordinator with the Cavaliers Drum and Bugle Corps from Rosemont, Illinois. Prior to his appointment, Mr. Dickey held positions at the South Carolina School of the Arts at Anderson University, the Anderson School District 5 District Office, and Southwood Academy of the Arts. He also served as a graduate conducting associate with the Louisiana State University Department of Bands and has spent many years as an educator and administrator in the South Carolina public schools. Mr. Dickey holds the degrees of Master of Music and Music Education from the Ithaca College of Music, Master of Music and Wind Conducting from LSU, and a Bachelor of Music and Music Education from the University of South Carolina. So this week I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming two guests to the podcast, so two for the price of one. I don't do this very often, but in this case, I, I think you'll know why. Uh, so we have Monty Mast and Drew Dickey uh, from the Cavaliers. So guys, thank you very much for joining us. Very happy you're here. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here. So what I would love to do before we get into kind of the, the nitty gritty and in, in, in how the Cavaliers used music first is really get an understanding and an idea of each of your career paths. Um, you know, the drum and bugle core world for some of our listeners and myself included is a little um, mysterious, if you will. We're not sure how that whole thing works, how old the people are, all the kind of the million questions that we might have, but I'd love to know how you, you know, got from, you know, being a music ed major uh, to where you are today with your organization. So, Monty, why don't you get us started? Okay. Um, I grew up in Northeast Ohio, went to Norton High School and uh, graduated from the University of Akron. Um, so, that was kind of my path, and I knew early in high school that 
I was probably going to be a music ed major. That was right. where really my passion was. Um, and then how I kind of got into drum corps was I went after I graduated high school, um, the Blue Coats were having a um, camp. And so um, went on, went in Memorial Day and auditioned and got a spot and marched with them and went from there. Wow. Um, and so I marched, uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of do my, my career side first. So I went to the University of Akron and then taught one year at Coventry Local in um, just outside of Akron. And a friend of mine encouraged me to take a position with him in Texas. So I uh, moved to Corpus Christi, Texas. Oh, wow. Um, not, not too different than Akron. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different. Oh, wow. Um, and was at Cal Allen Middle School for five years. Okay. And then moved to uh, the Klein School District as a as a band director at um, Klein Oak High School. Wow. And was there for um, 13 and a half years before um, I took a position in administration and um, spent the last 12 years of my career in education as um, the director of fine arts for the Klein School District, um, which is a 50,000 student plus school district that now has five high schools and 10 intermediates and and 30 plus elementaries. And oh I oversaw band, choir, orchestra, theater, arts, visual arts, and dance. Um, How many teachers? Is that like 150, 200? Um, when, at one point, we were right at the edge of 300. Oh, my God. <laughs> so. Um, so not too big of a gig, right? I mean, how many, how on earth do you get all those observations in, or did you, did you, I well, mean, and that was really campus-based. Um, oh, all right. so I really kind of ran, uh, making sure that they had supplies, that they had good, uh, the staffing was where it needed to be. Um, they had resources, um, curriculum development, uh, so that if a kid moved from one campus to another, it wasn't like, what are we doing? Right, right. Um, and then on the drum corps side, I marched drum corps with the Blue Coats and then eventually the Phantom Regiment, taught the Phantom Regiment, um, and then uh, got into judging and was a DCI adjudicator for almost 20 years. Oh, wow. And so when it was time for me to leave public education and, and the Cavaliers happened to be looking for an executive director, it was kind of the, the melding of both worlds um and so they needed an administrator and i had the background from absolutely working in the school district and so there there were a lot of uh, parallels yeah they're very different moving from public ed um to uh you know private sector nonprofit um but you know the the concepts are the same the the devil's in the details a absolutely very cool. So, and for the for our listeners, Klein ISD is is a suburb of Houston, correct? Correct. Right. North so, yeah, those of you that have not been to Houston lately, <laughs> it's massive. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just you know, when when you say something like five high schools here where I am in the Northeast, that's just completely unheard of in one district. So, yeah. amazing numbers. So, let's switch over to uh, Drew. Maybe Drew, you give us uh, same thing your your career path and and how you got from you know being interested in music ed to where you are today. Yeah, so I am originally from uh, North Augusta, South Carolina area, so just on the 
South Carolina side of, of Augusta, Georgia, okay. so just across the border. Uh, went to Midland Valley High School, um, and you know, kind of kind of got the bug early on, both for for drum corps and for um, you know music education. Kind of knew in middle school, like I wanted to be a band director. Um, attended the University of South Carolina and uh, taught in South Carolina public schools for a while. While I was doing that, I was also I did a summer master's in music ed at Ithaca College up in New York. So oh, just kind of cool. continuing to, you know, continue to do the professional development thing, continue learning. Um, at that point, I kind of figured out, like, I really enjoyed um, coaching teachers and working with, you know, future educators and that kind of thing. So um, decided to go back full time to LSU, uh, did a master's in conducting. And in leaving LSU, I was kind of trying to figure out, I, I knew at some point I wanted to do a doctorate, but I didn't want to kind of go immediately into it yeah. um, and just got a kind of a, a phone call out of the blue about they were opening a fine arts magnet in upstate South Carolina. And um, so it just worked out. My, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was kind of in the area and um, they called me and said, hey, would you be interested in coming kind of working for the district office and working at the school and helping us kind of build this arts magnet? I was like, well, yeah, I, I would love to. But at the same time, I would really, you know, I still want to make music and do that sort of thing. And, and it just kind of worked out that Anderson University is right around the corner from where I was teaching. So on top of kind of working for the district office and doing a lot of teacher coaching and, you know, curriculum development, that kind of thing, I was also teaching at Anderson University doing, you know, teaching low brass and conducting ensembles and teaching methods classes. So it was, uh -huh. I spent six years kind of getting to live in both worlds, which was, which was really great for me as, a, as an educator. Um, so fast forward, you know, I, I, I was really happy there, really enjoyed uh, Anderson and really enjoyed working there. But um, my wife and I had a had a son and I kind of we kind of talked about, well, when's the time for me to kind of go back to school? Um, and I just want to make that decision before he was old enough to you know how busy I was going to be uh, doing yep. a doctorate. And so two years ago, I, I moved to Austin, Texas and started my DMA in conducting um, at the University of Texas, Austin and loved it and uh, served as assistant instructor here and you know, work with the marching band and all the athletic bands and concert ensembles. And it, it keeps me really busy. So it's been really great. Um, on the drum corps side of it, I you know, kind of got the bug early. I was kind of interested in drum corps, more so the, the artistry and the teaching aspect of it than the performing. Like I enjoyed performing, but at the same time, I really enjoyed the educational side of it. Um, so in high school, audition uh, at Carolina Crown and had a chance to kind of work with those guys and learn there. And then, you know, I've kind of been all over the place, um, spent a few years with Carolina Gold, the Jersey Surf with Crossman, kind of float around a little bit. And I kind of got out of it because I was just so busy with all of the normal work things yeah. that we were doing. <laughs> And, you know, in five-ish five, five -ish years ago, maybe a little more than five years ago, um, Mike Martin called and said, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of expand our team and, you know, get the right people in place to kind of build the, the brass program at the Cavaliers. And he called myself and called Kevin LaBeouf and a couple of other friends of ours and said, would you be interested in coming on board? And, of course, you know, the chance to work with Mike and Freddie, that's just not something you – you turn down, you know, right, you're absolutely. Around really, really top notch musicians and educators. So I've been since fall of 17, I've been with the Cavaliers and, and really excited about the direction things are going. So that's fantastic. Very. So, yeah, I mean, you, the two of you sound like, you know, a lot of music educators I know who are successful and that is they, they say no to very little. Um, and when they do, it's very considered, but they've got, you know, their, their hands in many different uh, pies and, and, and side hustling here and there. But it, it's really interesting, in my opinion, to hear that, you know, how you got to where you are. And I'm sure that our listeners, uh, you know, see some of that in themselves. 
So I'd love to hear, you know, for, for myself who, who um, you know, I don't, uh, the, I've only gotten into um, watching Drum and Bugle Corps probably in the last 10 years or so. Um, I'd love to hear either, maybe we'll, we'll start with Monty on this one. Um, tell us about the Cavaliers, like what's the, what's the mojo behind it and, 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 and how was the program impacted uh, during COVID and what does it look like uh, for this upcoming summer? Well, I mean, Drum Corps really started, you know, back, you know, like we're, this is our 74th year of, of existence for the Cavaliers organization. It was founded in 1948 by Don Warren, basically out of, because he saw um, the VFW, I think it was VFW Nationals that were in Chicago. And he was working with Boy Scout troops. And he said, you know, I'd like to start one of these to keep kids oh, in community together. Yeah. So most drum corps really started out of Boy Scout troops, VFW posts, American Legion posts. In the East, it was CYO, a Catholic youth organization. Yep, yep. Um, and they were community-based. And one of the things that has really changed over time has been um, the evolution of drum, the, the top level drum corps, like the Cavaliers, have become essentially national organizations that tour all over the US. Um, our season will move in um, May 22nd. Um, and then we basically do four and a half, five weeks of pre-tour training where we put the show together um, do all of that work. And then we tour for about um, almost seven weeks. Um, first part of it is in the upper Midwest, but then, um, you know, I, we open late, very late, um, June in Detroit at Ford field. Um, and then we're in the Midwest for about three weeks and then head to San Antonio across to Atlanta, up to Allentown and back to Indianapolis. And so it's, it's become much more of a business side of what we do. But also when you look at the membership of the core, um, last summer we had kids from 29 states and three countries. Wow. Um, so it's not just a, you know, we're based in Rosemont and we get support from Rosemont and we're ambassadors for the village of Rosemont. Right. If you don't know where Rosemont is. It's basically O'Hare Airport. Yep. We're the first exit outside of O'Hare and a very small community, but we're the ambassadors for that for that community. Right. And um, but it, it has changed with that. And then I think with COVID, I mean, the, the first thing was in 2020, we shut down. Wow. Yep. We didn't tour. Um, literally, we went from uh, the we were still planning on doing a brass camp in March of 2020 and that Wednesday before the Friday camp yep. when the NBA shut down and the president went on TV and the World Health Organization said, we're in a pandemic now and yeah, we shut down. Yeah, screeching halt. <laughs> and what was so weird about it was we went from, we're gonna have a camp this weekend, three weeks later, we're saying there's no season. Yeah. It was so quick. Yep. Um, and then it was figuring out how we return from that. How do we move forward? 
Um, you know, the first thing was how, how does an organization like ours survive? You know, where's our, our money coming from? It's not coming from ticket sales. It's not coming from member dues. It's not coming from other sponsorships and, and fundraising and t-shirt sales. So, you know, we, you know, fortunately our fans and our alumni really stepped up and then, uh, you know, we were able to return to the field last summer in a, in a, an abbreviated version, right. um, non-competitive version. And this year we're going back to a fairly traditional tour, you know, knock on wood and, you know, COVID willing that, that we, there aren't any additional issues, but, yeah. you know, we're also dealing with, you know, gas prices and food prices and the inflation and everything else that's affecting the bottom line of how do you get people to tour? Yeah. You know, it's interesting listening to um, the whole kind of history and the, and the, and the, the date ranges um, where I'm from in New York, I went to college in New Jersey and there were two drum corps. There was the Bergen cadets and there was the Hawthorne Caballeros that were around, but it was only college kids who can be in them because of the timing of the season, right? So where I am in the Northeast, schools don't get out until the very end of June. Um, so do you see a lot of high school kids from the Northeast or is it mostly college kids? I would say it's a, it's a mix. Um, you know, in we do, I mean, obviously with, with kind of where we are competitively, we do have a lot of college kind of music majors who yep. want to come do this, but uh, we do have a number of, of high school students and more often than not based on like, if, if we share with their schools, like what the experience we're providing for them is, they're usually willing to be flexible with them school wise and kind of let them come out a little bit earlier than they normally would. So there's right. some flexibility there, you know, because of how important the experience is for the growth of the student, so. Got it. So Drew, this next question is for you, because I know that um, you, uh, when Mike Olander kind of got in touch with you and we and we realized that the Cavaliers might be able to uh, integrate music first into their, into, you know, kind of your whole, uh, the machine <laughs> that is that is your organization. I'd love to hear like, how did you guys use it? What are you doing? And and what kind of impact did it make? Yeah, so so for us, um, these initial discussions probably started maybe three years ago. I mean, kind of leading into the, the COVID year that unfortunately got canceled. Right. Um, and so with that, just kind of talking about the structure, Monty kind of hit on some of this of like, you know, we have kids from all over the country and from other countries, you know, kids who are coming in from Japan and elsewhere. And um, for us, the traditional model of drum corps um, is, you know, and people know, like, we're together all summer, you know, we're doing the May to August, you know, spring training touring thing. However, our season kind of starts in November. Um, so we typically will do auditions like these satellite auditions kind of all over the country in November and December with some sort of a callback in January. So we'll meet up in one specific location. This year it was in Denton. Um, and that's just kind of typically a three to four day weekend, get together, rehearse, audition, see how everybody plays and moves. And then we, you know, kind of make some decisions on our, on our roster. Well, traditionally we would do that. We would repeat that process in February, March, and April. And, you know, the, the difficult thing about that is you've got students who you're trying to help learn music from a distance, you know, and also keep them engaged 
between each of these events. And so for us, music first became kind of the, the thing that helped us kind of fill the gap on a lot of that. So right. you know, having the, the access with, you know, for them to you know, us push out music to them and for them to be able to sit down and kind of work on, on their own and get immediate feedback while we can also very quickly kind of see where our weaknesses as a whole, you know, we can very quickly kind of get a snapshot of, of their personal development at home. That's been huge for us to the point where this season we decided mostly, mostly because of cost that we were not going to do rehearsals in person in February and March. Um, so music first has really kind of been given us the ability to kind of have a little more flexibility and having the have the kids get on a plane and fly to rehearse for a weekend. Instead, we can use technology to really kind of engage them between January and April, which saves them money on travel, yep. but also keeps us prepared for the summer. And keeps them, you know, in, in, in it's funny, two years ago, who would have thought of said, you know, keeping the kids safe by keeping them home. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't think a lot of, again, because I missed all of this as a, as a, as a kid, I just did my high school marching band. I didn't even know there was such a thing until I was in college. Um, when you think about other um, things like uh, youth sports, um, cheer, uh, um, you know, uh, dance teams, all these things that these kids travel around, travel so soccer, travel baseball, a lot of kids are traveling all around the country for youth sports. And so I guess having a, you know, fly into Rosemont. I mean, you couldn't be any more conveniently located, um, you know, to fly in for the weekend to rehearse. I guess that it used to be common practice. Are you doing that um, this year? We are. It's just, it just kind of looks a little bit different for us. Um, one of the things we did, and, and I will say some of these discussions, we had actually, Monty and I and Dr. Vaughn, our leadership had been talking about prior to the pandemic right. of how can we minimize cost on the student. Um, and so one of the things we did this year is we decided instead of doing like one or two big weekends, we would do a lot of smaller kind of auditions all around the country on top of digital submissions where people could send in videos and we could evaluate that way. And I think out of everyone that we auditioned the fall from a brass standpoint, um, I think three kids had to get on a plane, which wow. is, you know, whereas five years ago, most of our students were getting on planes to have to travel to Rosemont or one specific location. So right. it's, you know, a, a lot of this has kind of forced our hand to think a little more creatively and how we engage students, but at the same time, trying to make it more accessible for more students to audition and be a part of the organization. So were you using music first um, for the audition process or also to get them prepared? So when they show up for the beginning of the season that they've got their music down? primarily, and, and I will say part of the, and this is kind of the, I guess, some of the behind the scenes stuff people will see about drum corps. In the months of November to January, typically we don't even have show music in our hands. You know, okay. oftentimes we're just working fundamentally, you know, just kind of getting our body prepared for, you know, how we approach technique, whether it be musically, visually, whatever that is. When we get into January, it's kind of like, you know, the floodgates open and we start getting a ton of show music. Uh, in their hands. And for us, that's really where music first starts to come in, in that we can begin to push out, the kids have an understanding of our technique program, we can push out things that way. But we can also, you know, go in and assign specific parts of the music that we know are really, I mean, pretty difficult. When you look at musically what we ask of the students, I mean, there's some 
pretty insanely difficult musical visual moments that we try to achieve. Absolutely. And, and because of that, this gives the students the ability to own their own. We can isolate these individual segments of music between January and April and really slow that down and break it apart and make sure we're all approaching it the same way before we even show up on day one in May. So. Got it. Are you, um, I, you know, uh, the, when the broken arrow high school marching band, which is probably one of the most successful in uh, of the high school level, um, first came to uh, use practice first. I'm not sure they're still using it with their marching band, but they use the memorization feature. Um, you know, are you using that bit at all, or is it really is is it mostly for you know rep uh, um, preparation? That is something that we are using this season leading into May, um, specifically because as I kind of mentioned, we're kind of constantly evolving the show music between January and, and move-ins. Yep. And, and even, and I hate to say, even once we get into May, I mean, things are going to naturally change as we start putting things on the field and figure out what works and what doesn't. So for us, there are small segments that we'll have them memorize and we'll use that feature for, but yep. really kind of in the April to May range, that's when that kind of comes in handy for us so that we can just see where they are and they can kind of self self assess. Like, do I really have this memorized or, or do I think I have it memorized? Right. Got it. So, yeah. so a couple of absolute newbie questions and drew, I'll give these to you and then I'll go to Monty uh, on the next one, which is a little bit uh, larger um, conceptually. And, and that is that, um, are these uh, the, the students, um, what, how do I, how do I put this? Uh, um, all right, I'm gonna break here. I'm gonna, I just gotta oh, get good. that question back. You're I'll good. come back to that and, and edit this bit out. So hold on, I had a, all right, um, good. All right, so we'll come back right. So I have a cool question about the show itself. Um, my mother has a dance studio. I know you might be going, where is he going with this? But, you know, they have to think about their spring recital theme, you know, starting in December. And you talking about this, you know, getting the show together. I'm imagining you guys have like staff arrangers. We do. And, and, and Monty may want to speak to kind of how we piece yeah, that like, How do you come well. up with the show? Because your shows are always so extraordinary. I mean, who's coming up with these ideas? Yeah, we, we have an entire design team that kind of pieces that together and who works with the instructional staff. So, you know, there is kind of some overlap there of folks who come in and teach and choreograph and that type of things. And, right. and But also we, we hire a very specific kind of design team um, and it's headed by a program coordinator who this year is Danny Wiles and um, in, you know, some incredible, incredible artists who, you know, really kind of have their specialized areas. You know, we have folks who specialize and brass arranging like Mike Martin, you know, percussion arranging uh, with Cliff and Mike McIntosh. So all of these folks kind of bring their niche to the design team. Right. And they kind of collaborate to come up with whatever this product and this theme is and kind of write within the the context of, of the entire product. Right. Money, I mean, is there I any, mean, more, you, when, is there any I, more money you might want to add to that or? Yeah, go ahead, Monty. Well, I think, you know, like, so we have the, a group of designers um, there are 10 people who are kind of involved in this process, some on the visual side, some on the, um, you know, on the musical side, some of them are much more on the concept and the, the creative side. And then some of them are more technical where they go, okay, I can make that work and I can create that way, um, and, and make that come to life. And so, it, it's kind of finding um, 
like any good team, you have to have people who fill certain roles. Right. And so I, I think the biggest thing is finding a way to get 10 rather diverse voices to come together and create one product. Yeah, I mean, because at the same time, I mean, you've got you've got new costume, new uniforms, new costumes, new right. flags, new this, new that, you know, kind of all this, the kind of props that are on. The, I've, it's just extraordinary what goes on. But you've also got, you know, you have to, the competition aspect of it to think about, to be like, well, is this might be what we want to do, but is this going to get us the win? Because, you know, you may not want to say it out loud, but, you know, you're competing ultimately at these things and you want to become the champion. So it's at the same time, it's like, what show is going to get us to that, you know, the podium, right? I mean, it's, it's, right. it's a lot to think about. Well, it's, you're looking at, you know, your competitive success, um, and, and, and sometimes, you know, yeah, winning is a part of that, but it, it's also what experience did the members get? Absolutely. How did we get down the road? Um, what did the fans think of our show? Because there, there's some great art that occurs that everybody goes, eh, you know, right. what, we have a very identifiable brand. And because of that, how do we how do we work within that brand um, of our identity? And you know, we are known for having, um, especially in the last four or five years, kind of one of our hallmarks is our core does a really good job of connecting with the audience. Yep, they're they're considered you know one that can really get people to stand up and cheer. It, it, you know. So how do we design a show that has that effect on the paying customer? And that's something that we don't take lightly in the design process. But then you're also dealing with, okay, if we are going to use electronics or you're going to use props or we're going to use unusual percussion instruments as part of our show, then we got to talk to our suppliers. We got to deal with budget. We've got to figure out, do we even have space on the equipment truck that we can make it work? Exactly. Uh, you know, you're dealing with all of those kind of things. And then, you know, how do you get, you know, our traveling circus of, you know, um, when we go down the road, we have um, three buses for members. We have one bus for staff. We have one bus for the support team um, that goes down the road with us. Wow. And, have a mobile kitchen, a mobile semi kitchen, um, and then two equipment trucks, and then a you know a, a chase vehicle or two, um, you know for whatever reason that we right. need. So you're dealing with you know it's a traveling circus, man. <laughs> it's like a... it, it is, um, you know, it is a traveling circus, and you know how do you keep everybody safe? Yep. Um, how do you deal with everything else that's going on um you know and then you know we're dealing with things in in just in in life now you're, you're making sure you're doing the background checks on everyone you're doing uh all of those kind of events that you're making sure that you can you know tell a parent okay my son or daughter's going on the road with the drum corps 
and we're going to provide them an, you know, an appropriate and a, and a safe environment. And we're going to take care of them and, you know, doing all the medical check that we have to do um, for all of the kids. And, you know, like one of the things we deal with now is, okay, you know, vaccination records. Who right. thought that yep. was exactly you know, a major thing that you have to deal with and yeah i mean for for a lot of directors out there i was a middle school band director for most of my career and i took my band on four trips that required you know overnight stays and i remember at the end of three days i was absolutely exhausted you guys are doing this for seven weeks i can't imagine yeah yeah but at the end of the I, i'm sure you both take like really nice vacations when the whole thing is over because you must be exhausted yeah, All right, so here's, it's here's exciting. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it is. I mean, you're like going on adrenaline and coffee. Um, yeah. So We're, I'm going to switch the, the, the conversation back to something that uh, Monty just mentioned, but feel free, uh, whoever wants to answer this is what do you think about, because uh, I know it's not been that long since they allowed, you know, electronic instruments um, on the field. What, what do you guys feel about music technology in a show and, and, and what is its role? I'll, I'll jump on that one. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways it has enhanced what it is that we do um, as long as it's used in the right way. Yep. You know, and, and, and I think what you're seeing right now is initially everybody wanted to try everything and, and realizing that there's kind of a fine line of like of taking from my perspective, like taking the performance out of the performer's hands. So in other words, like with electronics and with technology and what it is that we do, there's a ton you can do in terms of sound manipulation and reinforcement, and those types of things. And it, it's in a lot of ways that evolved out of kind of healthy playing techniques. So for a percussionist, not having to really like beat the, the instruments to get it to project, you know, now they can play in a healthy way, just as they would in a concert percussion ensemble. Same thing with like brass soloists, you know, the fact that you have trumpet players who now can they can just sit back and play. And it also kind of affects the staging side of it too, where now we can place that soloist anywhere on the field and it can still be heard. So there's a right. lot of things that have been great advantages to us. Same thing with electronic instruments that we can, you know, we have the ability to, you know, sample or use different colors that we couldn't before. However, you know, there has to, from my perspective, there has to be kind of a happy medium where we're not, allowing the electronics and the design of the electronics to dominate what's being performed. So in other words, like it would be very easy for us to go in and hide a lot of our deficiencies. And, and that's for us at the Cavaliers, our goal is to reinforce when we need to, but for the most part, for it to be as acoustic of a performance as possible, if that makes any sense. Oh, it totally like, does. Yeah, we for and and that's just a personal thing, and and we approach it maybe very differently than other groups do, and that's okay. But right. you know, if if we have these exposed, delicate moments, we want them to be exposed, and we want people to realize that the the kids are achieving at a really high level, um, as opposed to us just kind of using you know the auto tune, sleight of hand, reverb, you know, kind of thing. So for us, I mean, I think it's I think it's created a, a ton of huge advantages for the activity, and I think when used in the right way, it's great. But we've made a conscious decision to not to try not to overuse it and to really kind of let it be a natural organic part of the show as opposed to a, something that's like always dominating what we're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, if, yeah, go ahead, Monty. I think, you know, if, if you're Cirque du Soleil, how you use electronics is it, it's all about the end user experience. 
Okay. They're, you know, obviously they want their performers to shine and they do um, certain things, but they're not a youth activity and they're not a competitive activity. Right. The only thing they're competing for is, am I, you know, putting down my money on O or, you know, Ale- Alegria or exactly. <laughs> the Beatles love. Right. You know, they're competing in that way. We're competing against other organizations. So, and if there's criteria that's based on your performers, then the performers have to be the ones that drive the outcome. You know, yes, the, the design is super important to that. But if, if we just create a soundtrack and play it electronically, that's, that's not benefiting the performers in their educational process. And then plus it's, you know, are, are you really getting that from, I want the performers to generate that excitement. Absolutely. That be part of it. In many ways, it reflects my kind of look at technology in music education writ large, which is that, yeah, there are a lot of novelties out there, but is it really furthering the mission of teaching the kids music or is it just a hokey thing that you're playing with? And I'm sure, you know, what Drew was just saying in the beginning when they first, I don't know how many years they've been allowing it, but I know it's not been that long um, that people were trying everything, seeing what's, you know, sticks and then, and then, but I love the approach that you guys just described, which is as long as it's furthering the story, as long as it's it's highlighting the musicianship and uh, then go for it. But if it's going to detract from that in any way or be seen as kind of like a hokey little oh, or why they do, because that's the other danger, isn't it? That you're that you're using or relying so much on electronics. Everyone in the audience is going, are these guys actually good or is this all electronics? Right. You know, there's so many examples of that in the pop music world where people have been caught lip syncing or, or or way too much auto tune, that kind of thing. It's really interesting to hear your guys' uh, perspective on that. So I got I got two more questions for you. Uh, the first one, um, uh, either one of you can take it. It's it's the advice because what I love about what we've done at Music First in our partnership with you guys at the at the Cavaliers is that we're not on the field at all. We have nothing to do with that. We're purely in the preparation side of things, getting kids to helping them get to the level that you guys need them to get to. So I would love to hear what your advice and maybe each of you can give a little uh, what, you know, if anybody else is thinking about either using music first or technology in general, um, what would your advice be to the other uh, cores out there, even though you might want to say, hey, don't, don't use it because we'll, we'll beat you. Um, I think, you know, the way I look at, at technology, I guess I adopted this philosophy from what we were doing in the school district. And that is, how does it transform what you're doing? Is it transformative technology? Or is it, you know, instead of using three by five cards to write your notes on, now you're putting them on a PowerPoint? Yep that all you've done is change tools and three by five cards are a lot cheaper than a PowerPoint um, certain ways. So how do you transform? How does it change your education? Um, Do doing anything that, um, that really changes your approach. 
Um, you know, like we use some different technology with a with a drill program, Ultimate Drill Book. Yeah. Well, man, I don't have to copy thousands of pages of stuff. Um, how we're using technology to work with students, you know, we're putting all these things in folders and emailing them to kids instead of, hey, we got to mail it to you or, right. or you got to wait till camp and we can distribute it. I think it's looking at how it's going to impact the way you approach teaching. And I think that is, is a huge thing because sometimes you, for a short-term learning curve, you will save so much time on the backside. Right. And I think the other key thing to this is what technology allows you to do is eliminate seat time. You don't all have to be in the room to do it. So a kid can, you know, I had a discussion with a student the other day and he was talking about doing his ear training on a train. <laughs> he, it was, he had a, a gig that he would go and it was a 30 minute ride either way. And he decided it was a whole lot easier to take the train than to drive and pay for parking and all that kind of stuff. And he found, Hey, if I've got a good set of, of headphones on, I can sit on the train and do my ear training exercises on a train. Who'd ever think of that? That's right. <laughs> so it allows people to not be tethered to being in the room. Yep. I love so it. You kind of jump on. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think some of this kind of, if we talk about kind of what would prompt the use of, of technology kind of in the classroom. And, and this is coming from someone who the previous school district I was in was one-to-one -one technology from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. Like every wow. child had a Chromebook, you wow. know? So, you know, I'm certified as a Google trainer, you know, Apple educator, like I've done all of that kind of stuff. And the thing that I kind of found, especially as watching, watching teachers kind of integrate these things was oftentimes they kind of tried to force the issue instead of just using it naturally in the way that is going to most benefit them and their students, if that yep. makes any sense. It does. So, so it's like, you know, if there are certain skill sets that, that, that a, that we can develop that technology is going to make easier for, and for us, whether it be slowing things down and, and checking accuracy or tuning or whether it be memorization or whatever it is, you know, if, if, if we were a high school band program, I, I we'd be using sight reading on this, you know? Yeah. So, so for us, it's like, what, areas of the of skills that we need our students to have how can technology make that easier and and for me you know music first it, it just makes sense in terms of you know developing just our fundamental skill set being able to very quickly evaluate students and see you know who's developing who's not what are the things we need to continue to work on and also kind of guiding our future instruction because to have all of that data in one place and be able to quickly access it and compare recordings and and see you know, who's doing what and what, what are the skills that we need to refine? I mean, that's huge. And, you know, you know, you look at, you know, 20 years ago, you know, drum corps, instead of doing this, they'd be like recording on a cassette tape and bringing yeah. that to a camp or something like that. So it, it just, for us, it just, it eliminates the, um, the need for having to be together all the time, especially in the winter months, yep. while also continuing to allow the students to get really productive and concise feedback, both from the technology itself and from our staff members. That's great. Thank you. Uh, so last question, and both of you, it's the magic wand. I ask every guest, 
And that is that if you could wave a magic wand and have music first do something that it doesn't do now or music technology in general, what would it be? I think, and, and I, I, I see the little bits and pieces where I think it's close to happening. And, you know, I, I referenced earlier that we end up with kids from 29 states and three countries last year. Yep. How could we rehearse with them virtually? Uh, Dealing yeah. with that latency issue and being able to hear each other. So, you know, we're in three different places right now having a conversation, but it's okay that there's that little pause between. But if we were three trumpet players playing a trumpet trio, how, how could we make that work in three diverse locations and, and deal with that? I, I see bits and pieces that there are some technologies that are pretty close to solving that. There sure are. Right now, it's a cost factor because you need a little audio interface to make to compensate for the delay. Um, Real-time audio is one of them. There's uh, there's a bunch that are out there that are doing it. That and and I think that um, you know in the next year or two it'll be ready. But it'd be like man, it would be a, it would have been fabulous if it was ready in 2020. Yeah, uh, Drew, your your uh, magic wand. But funny enough, I, I was going to literally say the same thing is, is the, coll <laughs> the collaborative piece. But but yeah. I will say too, you know, in thinking about music first specifically and kind of how how we use that is you know just increasing the um, the quality of kind of the sampling so that, so that kids have like really high quality models. Like I'm thinking about if I were teaching like a beginner trumpet player, and if they have the ability to play along and hear some really top notch trumpet players to play along with as a sound model. Yep. I think that would be huge, you know, and, no, that's and a great, that's great. We are, um, yeah, I, specifically in practice first, the, uh, the sounds, uh, could definitely be improved. I, I, I agree. Cool. Well guys, I, I know as, as it was obvious from, uh, your phone dinging away, you guys are super busy. It took us a while to get this together. I'm sure that you're like you know, you, you're, what are you a month out from, uh, or a month and a half from, from, from getting the band back together and, and, and going full tilt boogie. So I thoroughly appreciate the time. And, uh, we love being, uh, you know, a, a part of your amazing organization. So thank you both so much. And I wish you the thank best you. of luck in your, in your season this year. Thank you. And, and we're so glad to kind of have you guys as a partner and really excited for many years to come. Awesome. Uh, and hopefully we can, you know, I think that's one of the things is, you know, I, I've worked with you, Jim, for many years yep. on different projects. And, you know, it first you get your feet wet in it and then you go, hey, here's an idea that we have and it, just see how it evolves and, yep. and, you know, how we can use more of the kind of the product line. We're, we're kind of limited in what we're doing at the moment just because of logistics and time. Right. But do we develop a program with it? Do we do oh, I love it. develop cl clinics with it? And, you know, with that kind of thing to how to impact high school students. Oh, that's awesome. We, we should definitely continue this conversation. I, I, I really, uh, you'll be hearing from me, Monty. I'll quote you. <laughs> anyway, guys, yeah. thanks so much. I, I, I wish you a, a really fabulous season. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening to Profiles in Teaching with Technology from Music First. For more information about Music First, please visit www.musicfirst.com.
If you would like to stay up to date with other music teachers doing innovative things in their classrooms with technology, please subscribe to our podcast through whatever outlet you listen to podcasts on. Thanks for listening.